Hey, Father, thank you so much for this Thursday morning that you've given us, that we can gather to hear more of the truth of your word, God, that we would internalize it, that we'd write it upon our hearts, and that we'd walk in it. So help us this morning to hear, to understand, and to bring your word and your truth to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Eric. Hey, y'all, my name is John Elmore. I serve as the men's director of recovery here at Watermark. Uh, It's Monday nights at 6.30, and everyone is welcome. My, uh, hey, my wife and I purchased a house this past year. Um, It feels like, I I think the bank actually owns it. We just make payments on it, so maybe we didn't purchase it, but um, we went to go buy a house, and when we did, uh, everything was kind of going along fine. Everything looked good. We'd got loan approval, everything, and kind of as we were getting towards closing, um, our loan officer said, hey, you know what, we got to send out the appraiser. I was like, all right, fine, to make sure that the value is worth what it is and they can extend the loan. So they go out there, and I get a phone call, and she's like, okay, I, you know, I, I think everything will be all right, but, and I'm like, but what? Like, we've already canceled our lease and our rent house. We've got movers scheduled. We've got the moving truck, but what? And she's like, well, there's, there's cracks in the brick, and we're concerned about the foundation. I was like, hey, we live in Texas. There's cracks in everybody's bricks. It's fine. Just move the loan through. And she's like, no, you don't understand. If, if the foundation's bad, we're not going to give you the loan. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, is it honestly hanging on that thread that I'm not going to have this house? Like, it, it seemed like this was God's provision. It was this crazy um, kind of aligning of events where we thought this was, this was truly we felt like God's provision. And because of a, a foundation being a little askew, this might not go through. And, and so this guy goes out there um, to look at it. She's like, you need to have a foundation engineer. And I was like, we already had an appraiser. I've got good news. He did this like some kind of thermonuclear scan. He showed it to me. He said that there weren't enough variances and that it's fine. She's like, no, we have to have a certified foundation engineer. Otherwise the loan's off. So this guy goes out there and praise God, it all checks out. He says that there are cosmetic cracks and everything's fine. However, if that wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have got the loan, wouldn't have had the house. And the reason why it was a big deal is because if, if there are foundation problems, and some of you may know this, the house is worthless because that foundation will shift and because it's on a slab, it'll pop those pipes underneath that are cast iron because it's an old house. And all of a sudden, this thing's a money pit. The doors won't shut, the windows won't open. And then we're stuck with a house that we can't sell. We're upside down on it. We default on our loan and the bank is stuck with this junker house that needs thousands and thousands of dollars of repair just because of the foundation. So if the foundation's bad, it doesn't matter how good the counters or the cabinets look or how nice the paint is or how nice the front door is. It doesn't matter if the foundation's not good. That house is no good, effectively. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said, hey, there's two houses one that's built on the rock, one that's built on the sand. The, sta- the same storm hit them both. The rains came down, the floodwaters rose, the winds beat against them both. One stood, one collapsed with a great fall. And I think in our Christianese culture, we all say, hey, I know, I want my house built on the rock. I want my house built on Jesus. My house is built on Jesus. I won't fall. Well, do you know that that's not even the answer to the parable that Jesus was telling Jesus wasn't, he didn't say, I'm the rock, build your house on me. That's not what he said. He said, everyone who hears my word and does what it says 
is like a man who builds on the rock. But who hears my word and does not do what it says is a house that collapses. And so it's about hearing and doing. It's a, it's a picture of obedience, and that's what gives us that sure foundation that allows us to withstand temptation, trials, suffering. That's what gives us the foundation, and that's what James points to. Blake's, Blake told us in the first week of this that much of James is pulled from the Sermon on the Mount and then just re positioned through Jesus' half-brother James. And so this passage in James, he's going to tell us all about hearing and doing, hearing and doing about obedience that leads to freedom and blessed life. And so that's what we're going to look at in this passage, James 119 through 27. To sum it up, true faith walks out the word. We got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to go quickly. Verse 19, go ahead and open your scriptures. It says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So you got quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's what God's asking of us. That's the first command, or first three commands, rather, that we find here in this passage of James. And I think it actually is an equation. That if you are quick to listen and slow to speak, that will help you be slow to anger. And oppositely, the inverse is true. That if you're, sorry, if you're slow to listen and quick to speak, that's going to make you quick to anger. And so we've got to follow this out. Mark Twain, the reason why I've got that there, is he said, it ain't so much the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts that I do understand that trouble me. And guys, honestly, we could read verse 19 and say, you're dismissed. Go be obedient to that command. And that would be enough. I know it would be enough for me to just go, John, just live that out. Like, that's plenty, okay? That's enough for me to just hear and then do and try to be obedient to that. That's plenty. I can't even do that. But James continues. I think the reason, what we've got to look at here, because slow to anger, some of you will say, well, but I do get angry. There are things that are unjust in this world, things that aren't fair. When my son's disobedient, when, when things happen at work that aren't right, I, I get angry. That's good. That's normal. That's healthy. That's because God has hardwired a sense of justice within all of us. There is inherent morality wired into us. That's the justice of God. That's, that's how you even know to feel like, that, that's upsetting to me. That makes me angry. What God asks us is don't sin in your anger. He says don't act upon the anger. It's okay, but don't sin in it. And so what's our response When we are sinned against, when we do feel angry, Luke 6, Jesus tells us, love your enemies, bless your enemies, pray for your enemies. That's his response. Not to revile or act out in anger or to to bring about your own justice so we don't act upon it. A question you might ask yourself is, at whom and why were you last angry? How did you express it? And then something that ties to the next passage, I want you to consider, when you did express that anger, did it bring about righteousness or unrighteousness when you expressed that anger? Excuse me. Verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think some of us might pause and say, 
the righteousness of God. That's not my concern. My concern's about justice. The anger of man, I, I want justice. I don't want the righteousness of God. I want what should be done to be done. That's what I feel angry about. And God says here in this passage, that's not my end game. I will bring about justice, says the Lord, but my end goal is righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so we got to retrain our mind to be the mind of God. Nathan told us last week that we are the, the first fruits of God's creation. So as such, if we're from God, we need to be like God. It says in Psalm 103 that he is slow to anger. And so instead of us saying, I want justice for this thing that I'm angry about, we need to say, you know what? I want, I want, I want the righteousness of God. And you might be asking like, wait, what do you mean? Righteousness of God for the person that sinned against me and who I'm angry with? Or, or do you somehow mean righteousness of God for me? Because that makes me feel indignant because I was sinned against. I'm angry. So righteousness of God for them, right? Not for me. And the answer... The answer is both. God wants righteousness or sanctification for both. For the person who sinned against us and for us, that we wouldn't act out in anger and that also they would be drawn more into fellowship with God. And and that might lead us to think, well, well, then who's going to deal with this sin? And who's going to sanctify that person? that sinned against me, because I'm angry about it. They, they need to bring about some change in their life. And the answer is God. I've got some passages up there. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And it goes on to say, overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Don't respond with evil, for evil with evil. Hebrews 12, 10, it says, God disciplines. He's the one that disciplines. Now he may do it through us, but never in our anger. We discipline out of love if it's our, our children or, a, or maybe an employee that we're supervising. That's out of love, but it's God who disciplines. Why? In Hebrews 12.10, for our good to share in his holiness. You remember that the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God? That's God's end goal. He wants everyone to be in right standing with him. He wants us to be shaped into the image of God. And so here in Hebrews 12.10, he says he disciplines us for our good, so that we might share in his holiness, become like him. First Peter 1, 2, for us married guys, I think sometimes we want to sanctify our wives. We want to be like, man, this is what God's word says. You need to, you need to act in this way. And let me, let me sanctify you and show you the path of righteousness you need to be on. And Peter, who was a married man, writes in First Peter 1, 2 and says, hey, God the Father chose us by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in your wife or you is going to be the one sanctifying you to bring about obedience of Christ by his blood. It's a great picture of the Trinity there too, but the point is is the sanctifying work of the Spirit and not you. The end goal is righteousness with God both for you and others. So, he tells us this, Slow to anger. The anger of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. And in verse 21, he says, Therefore, because of this, because your anger doesn't bring about righteousness, let me tell you this. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and, so put that away, put away the filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, this implanted word, this 
Yeah, I haven't been advancing the slide. Thank you, Peter, for advancing the slides. I totally forgot. And receive with meekness this implanted word right here, which is able to save your souls. So why are we going to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness? Because that is the root of the fruit of our anger. That's where that anger is coming from. When we lash out and respond in anger, it's not that anger is the problem. It's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says in Luke 6.45. So we got to deal with the root issue, which is that filthiness and rampant wickedness. But here's what the Bible doesn't say whenever you're struggling with a sin. It doesn't say, stop. Stop doing that sin. What it says is, turn from that sin while turning towards Christ. That's why it says, therefore, repent. Repent is a turning from. So put away that filthiness and rampant wickedness, which is bringing about that anger, which doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. And you're like, great, I'd love to, but I don't know how. And he says, and I'm going to tell you how. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Why with meekness? Meek is a word we don't like because we're like, man, I'm a a man. I don't want to be meek. That seems lowly. Meek means having the power to do something, but restraining for the benefit of another. That means I could lash out at you in my anger, but I'm going to restrain for your own good, for the righteousness of God to be shown in your life. I'm going to love you and bless you and pray for you rather than responding in anger. And that's what Jesus told us. And and we we do that, not by our own strength, but by the implanted word within us. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, it says that if we are in Christ, that he has given us a new heart and God has written his commands on our heart, that we would walk them out. We would just inherently know them because the Holy Spirit living in us. And as we know this word, It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As we receive with meekness that implanted word, it's able to save our souls. Now that is not a salvific statement. We're not talking about heaven and hell there. Jesus, faith through Jesus, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins personally is the way that our soul is saved. You might raise your hand and say, well, that's that's not what James just said, I don't think. And here's the answer. He says it is able to save your soul. That might be, be translated in a, in a way that we could understand better because there's, there's a Greek term there that save could be sanctify and that word suke for soul can also mean life. So let's read it this way. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to sanctify you in your life. The word sanctifies us. Jesus said that in John 17, 17. He prays for us and he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's what he says, that we're sanctified by this word. And so that's how we can turn from this this filthiness and, and rampant wickedness and that anger that proceeds forth out of the overflow of our heart by that word. Now this is interesting. He says, it's able... It's able to sanctify your life. It's able to to save your soul, to keep you on the path of righteousness and not one that leads to death. It's able, but it doesn't say that it will. It doesn't say that it's certain. And that's a curious thing because you're like, man, I kind of, I would like certainty. I would really like to know for sure that it would. Could you, could you please make me that promise? And God says, hey, it's able. 
It's able. I, I can't necessarily say it will, but it is able. The word is dunamos, where we get dynamite. It has the power to save and sanctify your life, but it won't necessarily. The reason why is because of verse 22, when it says, let's read it together. It says, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's why it's only able. Because if you just hear it and you don't do anything about it, it's not able. It's, it's not because you haven't activated it in your life. It stopped here and didn't connect to your heart and then work out through your actions and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the foundation is on sand and the house will collapse when the trials and temptations come because you haven't acted out the word. We haven't acted out the word. But as we do, as we hear it and do it, then we're not self-deceived. And then it does have the power to sanctify and save our soul. I've got three guys on there as the next bullet. I met three guys in this past year, past calendar year in 2013, I met three guys who blew me away with their knowledge of the word. Literally, I would be having conversations with them and I'd start down kind of a a sentence or a proverb in scripture and they would complete it and then say like the next two or three verses. Or when they were praying, they were just praying scripture from Revelation to Zechariah to Genesis, just like all through their mouth. And I was floored. I mean, I was like, dude, I need to take the back seat. Like, you know this word infinitely better than me. One of those guys is in rehab. Two of them just got out of jail for repeat offenses. And so I said to one of them, I, said, I, I cut him off mid-sentence in Scripture. I said, hey, man, my, I, can I just interrupt you real quick? My concern is not that you know the word. My concern is that you're not living it out. And a couple months later, it wasn't even around. And I've lived that. Don't hear me pointing the finger. I'm a recovering alcoholic, pornographer, adulterer, liar, greedy, wreck, wretch of a man apart from Christ and this word that was able to, to save and sanctify me. A lot of times we talk about David and we say, I want to be, be a man after God's own heart. Whatever that means to us. Like maybe that means like playing the harp and writing these psalms to God or, or killing the bear and the lion or going up against Goliath. I want to be a man after God's own heart like David. Do you know in Acts 13, 22 where that passage is found, that's not the end of the sentence. That's not the end, but yet that's our bumper sticker. I want to be a man after God's own heart. But the sentence continues and it says, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. That's the reason why David was a man after God's own heart because God said, this is what you need to do. And David did it. It didn't mean that he wasn't without failure. We know that he was an adulterer and a murderer. However, when he saw God's word, he strived to walk it out by God's power. And so that's what we do in this hearing and doing. Verses 23 to 24. I want to ask, this is the passage where it talks about a man who looks in the mirror and walks away, forgetting what he looked like. I want to ask, who here looked at a mirror at some point this morning? 
Yeah. Almost the whole room raised the hand. You others are like, ah, oh, dude, I'm not concerned with vanity. I'm not going to raise my hand. I know you did. It's cool. <laughs> because I see you. I look out here and I'm like, every single one of these cats looked in the mirror. They look sharp. I'm with some of Dallas's finest. They looked in the mirror. I think these guys got up and combed their hair and brushed their teeth and showered. And you're thinking, you didn't. We can tell. I didn't. You know what I did? I got up this morning. I put on my pajamas. This is what I wear every day when I, when I kind of spend time with God. I never leave the house looking like this. I'm sure you guys have thought, like, that guy looks like a slob. He didn't comb his hair. If you talked to me, you thought my breath stink. You got sl- I got sleep in my eyes. This probably spells, smells like spoiled breast milk. I just had a son. There's a reason for that. Um, I, I look gross, don't I? And the reason why is because I got up, I put this on, I literally looked in the mirror and was like, dude, I look terrible. And I'm, a, I'm about to go stand in front of all those guys and I look like a fool. I look like a slob. I look unprepared. I'm sure as Paul and others greeted me this morning, they were like, do you want to go freshen up a little bit? Like, you're going to lose all credibility because of how unkempt I was. And that's what James says. You see, I look ridiculous. I would never leave the house looking like this. I feel like a fool. And James says, man, you think this is ridiculous? Here's what's ridiculous. Reading this word, seeing what God says, like I did in the mirror, and going, eh, oh well and walking out the door. I'm all right. Looking in his word and saying, do not, lo- do not lust after a woman in your heart, avoid sexual immorality, and then looking at porn and having sex with your hand and thinking, yeah. And not just one day. See, I'm going to go home and shower. I don't go long periods of time looking like this. But for us to have looked at the word, see that we're supposed to avoid sexual immorality and be addicted to porn for 10 or 12 years. Or to read in 1 Peter 3 that we're to be gentle and considerate with our wives as we look in the mirror and go, (laughs) and walk out the door and then talk harshly with our wives or be passive aggressive towards them or whatever it may be. Or Or to read, be slow to anger. And then lash out in anger again at your boss, your wife, your son on 75 when no one's listening except God after you looked in the mirror and read not to or Dallas to read in God's word. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money and go, huh, maybe, maybe not and walk out the door looking as ridiculous as me dressed spiritually in your pajamas. All of us in some way or another. I I never want you to forget how ridiculous I look standing here in my pajamas because that's how we spiritually, I think, appear. And you think, well, but I don't know that others can really see me or us the way that that you're seeing me right now. Like, I I can cover it up. I tuck in my shirt, I comb my hair. Like, I look pretty good, I got it put together. It's not the case. When we're not living this out and yet claiming to be in Christ, people know. They're like, man, that doesn't line up. I know my wife knows. My mom and dad know. I think you guys know when I'm not living that way. My friends at Regen, 
when I seek their forgiveness, because I'm like, man, that, that wasn't gracious of me. It's spiritual B.O. People can smell it. They're like, man, it, it seems like you haven't gotten out of your pajamas. And I can't really put my finger on it, but I, th- I think you need to, to, be, to be washed with the word. It's the same reason why we look into the word. This, James is saying, this is a mirror. But it's only an effective mirror if we look at it and then do what it says. And that's, that's verse 25 here. And it basically says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, so he's now comparing the mirror to the perfect law and saying the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, meaning it brings freedom and perseveres, who no longer just hears and forgets, but is a doer who acts, he is blessed. And I think we see the word law and we're up in arms and we're like, wait, but Paul said I'm dead to the law and I'm, and I'm free in Christ, that, that I'm no longer a, a slave to the law. I, now I'm a slave to Christ. So, so James, why are you telling me that this law, and it's certainly not a law of liberty. Well, that, law, that word law is nomos, nomos, and it, it's law or commands. And, and here's the deal is that we were all slaves to sin. Prior to Christ, we were slaves to sin. It entangles us and it enslaves us. We're, we're buried with Christ, raised again to newness of life, and then we walk out his commands, his law, his commands, and that frees us up. We walk in life and peace, as Hebrews 12 says, from the sin that so easily entangles. So as we're new in Christ, as we look into the law of liberty, meaning we were enslaved, this will help keep us free from the slavery and entanglement of sin. It says, if you don't just hear it, but you do it, you'll be blessed. Paul writes in Romans and says, life in accordance with the spirit, I'm sorry, the mind in accordance with the spirit is life and peace. It's the law of liberty or the commands of liberty if we do them because it keeps us from sin. And so quickly, verses 26 and 27 This is the 3S litmus test for religion. And again, I think we see, I know I did, I see the word religion and it like doesn't sit very well with me because I'm like, ooh, I mean, I tell people a lot, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. So I'm kind of uncomfortable that the word religion's here because I don't want to be about religion. I know that Christianity is about a relationship with God through Jesus. So James, why why the religious talk? And when you look at that word in the original context, what it means, it it can be translated as God worshiper, worshiper of God. And so with that in mind, let me read it. If anyone thinks he is a worshiper of God and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's worship of God is worthless. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. That word there is a crying out, a trembling, a worshiping for, before God. And so James says, if, if you think you're a worshiper of God, and I think we'd all, we would all raise our hands and say, yes, I am, I love God, I worship him, then he continues this, this mantra and he says, then do what he asks because it'll lead to blessing and it'll keep you free from sin. And here's a little self-litmus test where you can check in. It's how's your speech? Is it edifying rather than critical and angry and breaking down? Is it loving and tender? Your speech, how's your speech? And then he says, and how are you doing with the suffering? Those who are helpless, the orphans, the widows, 
And it's interesting, he doesn't say just, how are you doing with throwing money at them and contributing towards their needs? He says visiting, spending time with them, visiting them. And then thirdly, he says, to keep yourself stained from the world. And I thought about this, how we could sum up being stained from the world. And it's 1 John 2.16. This is from the, the net translation. It says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye. And listen to this, Dallas. It says, and the arrogance produced by material possessions. <laughs> the, the, to keep ourselves stained from the arrogance of material possessions. So those are the, the three S's, speech, How are you doing visiting the suffering? And how are you doing keeping yourself from being stained by the world, not conforming to the patterns of this world? There's some questions that I think you received um, when you walked in here. And and guys, I know that that none of us got up at five-something to come and just hear me talk in pajamas. But rather, you came here because because you want to walk with God. You want to walk with his men And so as you break out here for the next 55 minutes before you're going to fight your way in traffic, man, do do business. Do business with God. You're safe. You're with his people. Talk about those struggles. Talk about where you land on those three S's. And then as you leave here, ask them, hey, hold me accountable. When you see me next week with, with this portion of the word, ask me if I did it, if I walked it out by God's power, because I don't want to be one that just looks in the mirror and walks away. I want to look in the mirror, see the spinach in my teeth and get it out or see like, man, that's, that's out of place by God's strength and his grace. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these men. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for your word that sanctifies us. God, we can't do this by ourselves. So I, we ask collectively, we plead with you, Lord, by, by your Holy Spirit in us, would you shape us more into the image of Christ because we don't want to remain how we are. The sin struggles we have, we don't like them. We hate them. So would you free us up from them, Lord, as we walk out your word. Amen.